0: So, kind of hard shifting into the text this morning. If you got your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter ten. We've just been faithfully plodding along this this uh, the past few uh, months, uh, working through um, the, the Gospel of Mark. And so today we find ourselves in Mark chapter 10, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. Before we jump into that, I want to ask you a question. Last week I asked a, a couple of questions, and you guys got really lively, and thought, so I thought, you know what, I should ask some questions more often. So we're going to start with asking some questions again today, and that is this. First one is this. What is your favorite Looney Tune? Don't talk out loud. Some of you, I just like... Just like force touched you and just shoved you back like 30 years in time and you woke up on Saturday morning watching cartoons and you're you're watching Tasmanian Devil and Tweety Bird and all these things in the Roadrunner what's your favorite Looney Tune just think think about it hold it in your mind maybe it's Taz maybe it's the Roadrunner or maybe it's the greatest of all time Bugs Bunny all right If Bugs Bunny is your favorite Looney Tune, I think I just dated myself and maybe just lost a lot of you. Uh, If you're a millennial, you're probably like, this guy, okay, boomer, something like that. Um, Least favorite, I'm going to say Bugs Bunny. Do you know, but if we were to flip that and ask the question, who is your least favorite? Who's the worst Looney Tune? This might be not so easy for you to answer. Least favorite Looney Tune. Well, for me, always kind of grossed me out, weirded me out, freaked me out, whatever you want to say. It was Elmira Duff. Does anybody remember Elmira Duff? Elmira was that girl, and if I say this, you'll remember, she was that girl that loved all of the animals so, so much that she quite literally smothered them all. And so she would love them and hold them and hug them and squeeze them and their heads would about to pop off their necks and their eyes would be bulging out and they couldn't breathe and they would be trying to escape and she'd put them in cages and all this stuff because she loved them so very, very much. Maybe you have, uh, uh, you, you've been in situations like that where somebody loved you so much that they almost smothered you. I'm going to turn it just a little bit. Have you ever loved something so much that you almost smothered it? Something that you lifted so high, that you cared about so much that actually all the things that it was meant to encourage and support actually almost were collapsed and crushed by your love for this one thing. You know, it's possible for you to love something so much, for you to care so much about a thing that it threatens to crush all other things. I see that so evidently in my life as me and my wife prepare to take a vacation at the beach. There's so many issues that come into going to the beach, right? We have to have all the clothes. We have to have all the food. We have to have all the the financial preparations. And and we have to have the place lined up. And we have to have all the toys. And it it can be so, uh, well, daunting and in some ways overwhelming. And if you're like me, I'm just like, hey, vacation starts when I wake up Saturday morning. Even if I'm at my house, that's when vacation starts. But for my wife, it does not start until we get to the beach. And so you can imagine, I'm relaxed, I'm like, hey, let's get another cup of coffee, it's Saturday morning, there's no rush, the, the house will be there when we get there, the, I'm pretty sure the ocean will, will still be going back and forth, going in, that's just what it does, so there's no need to get in a huge hurry, and uh, she's quite the opposite. And so since she's not in here this morning, she's upstairs with the Hubtown kids, I'm going to just tell on her, right? You guys won't tell on me for it. She sometimes can love the beach and love getting there in, in such a hurry that it can actually eclipse everything. And the very thing that we're trying to do to, to, to come together as a family and to love one another because of my bullheadedness and my just attitude attitude toward the beach and her love and fervor for the beach, we can clash and then it can make Saturday morning heading to the beach a very trying time for both of us. Well, the reason why I share that is because I think in this passage, if we're not careful, as we look at this idea of marriage, if we're not careful, we can make too much of marriage. Not that it's not to be made much of. In fact, this passage in Jesus' teaching corrects us and says, hey, I don't think many of you are thinking highly enough about marriage. And yet at the same time, we have to be careful not to think so much of it that it can end up crushing everybody else and everything in its path. I hope you see what I mean. There's a danger this morning for us to be warned about. That is that we would make too much of marriage and not enough of grace. But with that in mind, let's look at the text this morning. So if you have your copy of God's word, turn to Mark chapter 10. We'll read the first 12 verses. This is what the word of God said: says. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. commits adultery let's ask God to bless the reading of his word father we've turned to your word this morning and not the newspaper or some philosophical uh, work we've come to the very words that you have given to us because we know that in them there is life so father we pray that you'd meet us here that your spirit would work this text into our hearts that we would see Jesus lifted up that we would see our idols and we would cast them out and that your church would be helped. Father, we pray that those who need to be encouraged from this text would be encouraged. Father, those that need to be corrected, we pray that by your spirit you would correct us. Not for the sake of correcting, but for the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory, and for the sake of our joy. So we ask these things of you, Jesus, and we ask them in faith. Amen. Anytime we point to something and say that it's good, we are in danger of making an idol out of it. Do you agree with me on that? You kind of tracking with me. Anytime we, we say, hey, this thing is a good thing, we're in danger of making an idol of it. We can make it the thing. It can become very, very dangerous. Well, this morning, marriage is extremely beautiful. And it gives us a picture, an active picture of how Jesus cares for his church. But if we're, we're not walking circumspectly, that beautiful thing will become a thing that crushes us with guilt and finally alienates us from the love of Christ. Or instead it could fill our hands with stones and permit us to wound our brothers and sisters who have sinned, who have issue, or maybe who are even hurting. And so the effect of Jesus' teaching, really, I'll go ahead and tell you at the beginning, is it's to condemn all divorce as contrary to God's will and to put before us really the highest standard of, of marriage for his disciples and for us. But, but here's the main point that I want you to take home this morning. That marriage is for life and grace is for eternity. That marriage is for life and that grace is for eternity. Eternity. I want you to remember that as we walk through this text this morning. And I want you to know this too, that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Neither is adultery. Neither one of these things does, does Jesus turn aside and say, I can help anybody. I can give grace to anybody, but unless you've been divorced or unless you've committed adultery. So I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know whether you looking around for stones to pick up, maybe because you love marriage so much and it's so beautiful and you just want to maybe cast a few stones this morning. Or maybe you feel like maybe you've been hit with a few stones. Maybe you've been a part of a divorce, and divorce is always painful. Maybe this morning you just need to be encouraged. Know this, that marriage is for life. But even more than that, grace is for eternity. So let's work, let's work through this text. There's going to be four observations that I want to draw your attention to. There's so much in here. There's four that I really want to, I want to lift up out of this text for you to see and wrestle with this morning. And they are this, that divorce is allowed. There are instances in the New Testament, in the, even in the Old Testament, where the word of God would say that divorce is allowed. It's permitted. There are certain times when though that's not God's ideal, what maybe wasn't his plan, In some sense, he's permitted it. That's one point that we'll look at this morning. Another thing that I want you to grapple with is this idea that divorce is caused by sin. Divorce is caused by sin. And we'll talk about generally and specifically how both of those two things are at play in any divorce. It's caused by sin. Keep moving through this text and we'll see that marriage is for life. It's not temporary in the sense that comes and goes but instead that what God has put together we're not to break asunder and that marriage is for a lifetime till death do us part finally we'll see that marriage honors God that this gift that he has given that he has defined that it honors God and through all this we're going to remember this that grace is for eternity And that marriage isn't this thing that we will lift up so high that we'll use it to crush those around us or even be crushed by it ourselves. But that God's grace is extended to each of us who will turn from our sin and place our faith in Jesus. So let's look at verse number one there in chapter 10. It says of Jesus that he left there, Capernaum, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again as was his custom He taught them. And so if you remember, we've got this trajectory. Jesus is leaving the Mount of Transfiguration and he's heading towards Jerusalem. Along the way, he makes his stop in Capernaum. He crosses over the Jordan into Judea, there in the area where John was baptizing. And as is typical, he's known there. People began to gather around him and to hear his teaching. And of course, he teaches them. And among that group we find is the Pharisees. Look at verse 2. It says, And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So they come up to test Jesus. They're perhaps in front of the crowd. They come out Jesus, with, I believe, ill intent. They want to test him. They want to, I think, trip him up, tempt him in a sense, and not in a good way at all. And they asked this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, there's really no evidence that any Jewish leader as a contemporary of Jesus or even prior to uh, Jesus' time would really believe that, that uh, there is no legitimacy in divorce. But they would all really agree. There was, a, there was an agreement that there was actually cases where divorce would be maybe necessary and definitely permitted. So why would they come and ask Jesus this? Why would they try to unpack this, draw this out of Jesus at this particular time in front of these people? I believe firmly that they wanted to marginalize Jesus. They wanted to to make him say a statement that would be politically charging and dividing. I believe that they hoped to expose him as an opponent to the law of Moses you say, what do you mean by that? Well, the, Moses was the great prophet of Judaism, right? The, the Lord had used him, God Almighty had used him to give the first five books of the Old Testament. He had indeed allowed for divorce, in fact. He had written the rules by God's inspiration. he had even been given the, the commandments on stone. Furthermore, he even allowed the, 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 the uh, children of Israel to write a bill of divorce, He didn't introduce it. He he governed it in a sense. He throttled it. And we'll talk about that in a few moments. God's design for marriage was till death do us part. Maybe they're asking Moses, hey, Moses explained a lot about marriage. And furthermore, he then seemed to contradict himself by allowing them to write bills of divorce, husbands against wives. So what's all this till death do us part talk? Jesus Are you against the law of Moses? Is it lawful for a man to really divorce his wife? Would Jesus take a higher standard than Moses in this complicated issue? Would he move against divorce altogether? They're kind of hoping he will. They're hoping that Jesus will marginalize himself, that he'll say something that will hurt the the feelings or alignment of that day. So I think they want to expose Jesus as an opponent. But furthermore, I think that they, they really want Jesus to demonstrate which school of thought, if any, he is a part of. And so there's, an, a, there's a passage that we're going to work through this morning, or at least reference a few times. That's Deuteronomy chapter 24, the first couple of verses there. Moses talks about uh, divorce and when the, how they can divorce, when it's acceptable, and what, what should take place if that does happen. And from that passage, there was really two schools of thought within the, the Jews. That had uh, cropped up. One, one school of thought, uh, that was from, I'm going to butcher his name, but that's uh, Rabbi Shammai. His, his group uh, held and uh, interpreted that, that divorce was permitted. It was acceptable for a man to divorce his wife if she was unfaithful to him in some way. If she maybe had committed adultery, that was an acceptable place. That was an acceptable time for a man to divorce his wife. And aside from that, there were no other cases. That's how this first group would interpret Deuteronomy chapter 24. But then there was this other camp, and that's Rab- Rabbi Hillel. And his, his, his team, his school of thought, believed that you could divorce. A husband could divorce his wife insofar as she did anything that was just unpleasing to him. As a matter of fact, in the, the record the, 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 of the Jewish commentary on that passage, Hilliel was recorded as saying, even if she burnt your food, in so little as burning your food, you could divorce your wife. Some of you wives, you're thinking, "Man, I I, I wonder which, which which group my husband subscribes to, right?" Uh, w- w- single ladies, you better find out from your uh, your 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 beau, your your to be, uh, what he thinks on this. Okay, I've got some thoughts. I know Pastor Tim does as well. So we will we'll protect you. We'll 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 work through that with you. Um, but you had these two, and they really they couldn't be any more politically opposite one of another. And so if Jesus were to, to state clearly and plainly which side he was on, he would alienate some of the Pharisees. He would alienate some of the people. And, and you guys know how that is. We see that. We see politicians squirm. They all have their opinions, some of them, right? Some of them maybe don't have any at all, but, <laughs> but they all have opinions when they're on the trail and when you try to point, you, try, you, you, you meet them at a town hall meeting and maybe you try to pin them down. What do you believe about this? Or what do you believe about that? And they don't want to say it, Why? Because although they may hold to that, they're afraid that they will be reduced, that their whole campaign, everything that they're about will be reduced to this one thing, this one soundbite that somebody's going to catch on on video and then post it all over the Internet. Right? And they don't want to be pegged into that. And so they're they're trying to be careful. Some of them just flat out dishonest. What they're they're trying to do to Jesus right now is they're trying to peg him down. They're trying to pin him down. They want him to clearly state, which side is he on? Of course, Jesus doesn't have a problem doing that. I think they're trying to marginalize Jesus. But I think there's another motivation perhaps. If you consider the context, the, the political context in that particular day, I want to share this with you. I think they're trying to make Jesus an opponent of Herod, which wasn't easy. Was, was, wouldn't be too difficult to do. That would be an easy task. Why do you say? I, I think they're trying to make Jesus an enemy, just as John had been an enemy of Herod. Do you remember what happened? John had been in prison. Eventually, his head was cut off of his shoulders. Do you remember why? Because Herod Antipas had put his wife out of the picture and wanted to marry another woman. And Herodias had done the same thing. His new wife had done the same thing. She divorced her husband. Why? So that she could marry Herod. And what did John say about that? John publicly spoke out against that. And it eventually cost him his head. John had been a thorn in the side of the Pharisees for a long time. Maybe they did the same thing to John. Hey, John, what do you think about marriage? (laughs) I just read the paper and I want you guys to know something. Herod and Herodias should not be married. What they just did was wicked. It was ungodly. Maybe they just lured John in with that. Maybe Maybe Herod did the dirty work. Maybe Herodias did the dirty work that... The Pharisees had been wanting to do this whole time. And now they're thinking maybe that worked against John. Let's see if we can get Jesus in the same way. And so they asked Jesus this question again. At any rate, they're testing Jesus. They're trying to drag him down. They've come to their own rebellious conclusion regarding Jesus. He's not the son of God. He's not the Messiah. And they have determined that they will reject anything that he teaches and now they, they want to discredit him. Strike the shepherd in a sense so that the, the sheep will scatter. So this question we've seen is a hot button issue in Jesus' day. And maybe some of you are kind of squirming this morning because you think, well, it's kind of a hot button issue of our day as well. And to that I would agree. It was important in Jesus' day and it is important in our day. It's also important into the, in the life of the, of the hearers. Remember, initially, the gospel of Mark was written with, with, when Mark was writing it, he was thinking, this is, not, God is, God is using me to write this to the church at Rome. And You better believe in that day and age, those Roman hearers, that divorce was easy and frequent in Rome. And it was tempting for, for Christians in that city to be caught up in the, in the way of the people there surrounding them. and So it was relevant for Jesus' day, it's relevant for John's day, it's relevant for for Mark's audience, and I believe it's relevant for us as well. And I hope you come this morning not with a closed mind and a shut-off heart towards Jesus, like the Pharisees in this this passage, but I, I really pray that each and every one of us come to this text with an open mind and a soft heart. Let's look at how Jesus begins his response. He's a gentle shepherd. He answers them. What did Moses command you? Jesus, is it lawful for us to put away our wives? Is it lawful to to, uh, be party to divorce? Jesus answers them with asking a question. By the way, good teachers typically do that, don't they? They ask questions, don't they? Uh See what I just did there? That was another question too. Do you see what Jesus regularly is appealing to? Notice he could have asked a lot of questions. He could have went a lot of routes. He could have gone gone ahead right off the bat and, and given some of his own personal feelings on the matter. He could have talked about his own thoughts. He could have referenced personal experiences in the past or even talked about what's logical or what is fair. But he doesn't do those things. Not that there's anything intrinsically wrong in those options. But what he does for us is he demonstrates the authority of the word of God that should be in our lives. He asks, what does the word of God say? What did Moses say about this? More and more, I I pray that this church and that myself, we would be a people that first and foremost go to the word of God. And we wouldn't ask questions about, hey, well, uh, let me tell you you a bit about my experience or my personal thoughts about that. Initially, first and foremost, when brothers and sisters come to us and ask us for advice that we would first turn to the word of God and that we would appeal to it. And Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, he does as much. How do they answer, though? What did Moses say? How do they answer? They said, verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. What they're actually referencing or, or quoting is that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24 that I was mentioning just a few moments ago. And this is what that passage says. I'll read a couple of verses. Verse one, beginning there. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because she has, he has found some indecency in her, and that word indecency is unfaithfulness of some sort. And that's where, that word right there, by the way, is where the first group, the Rabbi Shammai group, that school of thought, they will lead into that and say that's the emphasis there. The emphasis is on on indecency, which is connected with fornication. But anyway, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts her in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. This is a specific illustration. And what Moses is doing is he's saying, okay, let me give you a hypothetical. If this were to take place just like this, there's some principles that we could say, this is what she shouldn't do, this is what she should do, this is what he should do, this is what he shouldn't do. Uh, Based on uh, and so this this illustration, we would take it and then say, okay, we can compare that to our lives. We can take these principles from this hypothetical. What Moses is saying is, hey, if a man is going to divorce his wife, if there's some um, any amount of indecency, then he can do this and that. And I want to be, I want you to be careful not to take this the wrong way. Some of you might be thinking, well, see, this is just. This, uh, this type of, of thought process is just archaic, and it's old, and it's just flat-out evil. It's suppressing women. Actually, this passage is demonstrating quite the opposite. See, this, at this particular point in time, men were, in this patriarchal sense, were taking the authority and the care that they had been given, the responsibilities that God had given to them. They were taking that, and they were using it to abuse those people under their care. And this passage here is saying, hey, Moses is saying, hey, you're, that, that, that nonsense, that's a thing of the past. You guys have started divorcing your wives for no reasons, for no good reason. And he's like, okay, this right here, God gives this law say, to, as a stopgap in a sense, as, a, as an attempt to kind of curb some of that. They're taking advantage of their position.'" Moses sees it, and he gives these guidelines, and he governs men, and he protects women by it. Now, instead of like it used to be, now a husband had to go to, uh, through the trouble of getting a, a bill of divorce drawn up. He had to get witnesses. He had to formally present it to his wife, whereas before it was far easier. Moses, though, had, we have to agree, we have to recognize he did make an allowance for Divorce, though, keep this in mind as well. Divorce was not God's plan, but neither is sin. Sin wasn't God's plan either. Sin was eroding marriages and further allowing for families to be destroyed and for God and his people to be dishonored. And so accordingly, divorce was allowed. And so our, point, our first point for this, this morning, our first observation is this, that divorce is allowed. There are some instances where God makes an allowance or even permits divorce. Christian, note this. God loves marriage. It is a gift that he defined and that he gave to us. And at the same time, there are allowances. One of those allowances, one of those instances where it's recognized is abandonment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write that down for further study. In that chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we understand that there are certain instances where if a woman in some way is being abandoned or even if a husband has been abandoned, practically speaking, divorce is already present, might as well turn in the paper, might as well make it official. Another is adultery. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, both of these texts address that. How, when adultery is, is one of the, the, the causes or things leading up to divorce, that it's recognized by God as being legit, as being permitted. The Pharisees, they're quick to, to quote chapter 24 there in Deuteronomy. Moses said it was okay to do so, Jesus. Will you argue with Moses? He said it was okay. I, I, I kind of felt, Jesus, that what you were just saying, that the, through your intonation, through your I don't know, disposition here, your facial expressions, that you don't really agree with that. Moses said it's okay. What does Jesus respond with? Verse five, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. The first thing we saw was that divorce is permitted, that divorce is allowed. And the second thing we we're gonna see this morning is that, is that divorce is caused by sin. divorce is caused by sin he says because of the hardness of your heart well it doesn't necessarily mean that anyone who has been through a divorce that they have a hard heart rather it means that there was hard-hearted rebellion against God both generally and specifically both in the culture at large and in the home specifically again Sin has entered into the world. We all recognize that. It's like a poisonous snake. It's slithered into each marriage covenant since Adam and Eve, and it has attempted to destroy what God has blessed mankind with. He's he's attempted to undo all that God is working in marriage. And while that's true in a general sense, that generally speaking, culturally speaking, society at large, it has hard hearts when it comes to marriage even more relevant to our individual cases of divorce is our individual sin. Within each marriage covenant, there are hard hearts. Within each divorce, there is at least one hard heart. That divorce is caused by sin doesn't necessarily mean that if you have been part of a divorce in your past, that that's part of your story, that you have a hard heart towards God or that you did in the past. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It's possible that you were sinned against. And for many of you, knowing your stories, I know that that is true. Possibly even divorced unwillingly. I've met so many that that was the case. Instead of a hard heart, I have found in my life, as I care for and meet folks that are wounded in a divorce, that they have not a hard heart, but a wounded heart. Stinging with pain, pain caused by sin. And if that's you this morning, I want you to know that there is healing in Jesus. If that's part of your story this morning, there is healing in Jesus. And so I want to invite you would, you, would you trust him this morning? Would you trust him this morning? Would you trust him with your heart? He wants to bind up your heart. He wants to protect your spirit. He doesn't want to crush it. He wants to heal you know this, that what sin destroys, Jesus restores. Hope in that. And whether you're the one that has caused the divorce or it's been done against you, know this, that Jesus still offers restoration. He still offers healing. Whether you're the offender or the offended, whether you sinned or you were sinned against, Jesus offers to both, to all forgiveness and healing for those who will repent. And trust in him. Because sin entered the world, it's a fact. Some marriages would be seriously ruined and destructively damaged. So God provided divorce as an accommodation in those cases. Moses allowed you to divorce. But don't forget why. Why did he allow divorce? Because of sin. Now, maybe for some of you lot more logical ones, you're, you're kind of wrestling with this, and you're like, how can this be true? Is, is God kind of speaking out of both sides of his mouth this morning? Is he being kind of deceptive? He talks to this side, he says this thing, and this side, he says that side. I mean, what, what's going on here? I mean, I hear in one point, he's saying, you have to stay married. Marriage is for life. God has joined together. Don't let anybody separate it. But then we also have this other part that's like, you can get divorced if you want to. How are we to marry the two of those together? How are we to hold them at the same time? Know this, that God is not the author of divorce. Neither has he chosen that it take place. As a matter of fact, this allowance for divorce is really nothing more than God recognizing that what he gave us, we broke. He's not saying, hey, divorce. He's saying, hey, I told you this. I gave you marriage. I gave you this good thing collectively it would bring flourishing and joy and growth and sanctification and what did you do with it collectively and individually we have worked to destroy it and to undermine it and so in divorce and these allowances what is God saying hey I think it's a good idea to divorce no he's saying I recognize that damage has already been done And so he's not the author of it. He's recognizing that we broke this good thing. If allowing for divorce in certain situations is in your mind an assault on marriage, then that would be akin to burying a a body of a dead person being akin to murdering them. As if you're somehow saying, hey, I fully agree with that. No, you're saying, hey, that that happened. It took place. And now... In response to that, we'll recognize that it's broken and that this, this person's life is lost. So God is not, can, he's not uh, changing his position on divorce, but he's recognizing that in a fallen world, that there are certain instances where the damage is done. Furthermore, notice this, that Moses is not commanding. He's not even encouraging divorce. He's really just permitting it when mankind has, in a sense, painted himself into a corner, made a mess of his life, maybe you can relate, I know I can, God says, hey, I'm going to pick you up and we're going to restart you. How, do you. how do you go from here? Well, we're going to recognize that what's happened wasn't good. We're going to move on. So in a sense, he's not permitting it, he's regulating it. He's regulating an existing condition. But notice that Jesus redirects our focus and he reminds us of the standard. The disciples will see in a moment, and the Pharisees now, they're saying, Jesus, can a man divorce his wife? How can we divorce and be legal and Jesus is like hey I I want to lift your eyes from asking these types of questions about what you can get away with and I want you to see what you should be aiming for and what the original intention was what does he say in verse 6 Jesus says but from the beginning of creation God made them male and female therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh here again notice quickly that what does jesus appeal to the word of god again what do you appeal to what what's your go-to when you face a dilemma somebody in the family struggling they ask you for advice where are you going to go what are you going to turn to jesus doesn't turn to reason he doesn't turn to the experts in a sense He doesn't turn to his own personal preferences. He turns to scripture. And he says from the beginning, Genesis, the name of the book, the first book in the Bible literally means beginnings. Jesus references the book of beginnings, chapter one, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created male and female, two genders, equal in value, differing in roles. I want to give you a quote this morning. This is a freebie. This is from Al Mohler. This is a helpful statement. He says this, the biblical pattern is clear that men and women are the same and different. They are the same in that they were equally created in the image of God. They are different in that they have important biological and vocational differences. And so they're equal in value and they're different and role God made male and female both in the image of God there were those in Moses's day and even in Jesus's day and and then ours that err when they begin to think about the values placed upon male and female particularly in Moses's day men thinking that they had some extra ability or extra authority to suppress those around them and to take from them what wasn't theirs to take in some way, thinking that they bear more of the image of God than the other. And the thing that separates us from the creatures of this world is what connects us with the other gender. That's the image of God. Genesis chapter 2, Jesus also quotes there. Verse 24, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The, the underlying word for hold fast, it has this sense of superglue. It's there in the Hebrew. Just kidding. There's no air in this room. <laughs> hold fast. It's this idea of gluing, of bonding, of connecting and, and securing two things together. It gives the sense of permanence. Not to be changed. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. This other one made in the image of God and these two will become one flesh. Permanently. And so that gives us this idea. The third observation this morning is that marriage is for life. Marriage is till death do us part. The Pharisees, they're asking why Moses commanded divorce, but Jesus corrects them. That was not God's idea. From the beginning, Jesus says. And he shows them that divorce was not God's ideal. It wasn't God's best. But from the beginning, rather, God intended that marriage be a permanent gluing, a permanent bonding of two things together. I like how one Baptist pastor, theologian, defined marriage. He said this. God designed marriage as a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman for their mutual joy, the good of society, and the procreation of children— Ultimately, marriage displays the glory and grace of God by picturing the unbreakable relationship between Christ and his church. I'm going to tweet that later this week. uh, Or not tweet, I'll post it on Facebook. I don't even, don't tweet much. I'm going to read it again for you too. God designed marriage as a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman for their mutual joy, the good of society, and the procreation of children. Marriage ultimately displays the glory and grace of God by picturing the unbreakable relationship between Christ and his church. That was the design from the beginning. The divine ideal witnessed there in creation is the permanent union of a man and a woman in holy matrimony. It's been illustrated that marriage the way God intended it is like liberally applying glue between two two by fours, so two slabs of wood, liberally applying glue, running screws all over it, in and out of it, between the two, letting it set up. And if that's what marriage is like, the permanent bonding of two separate things, then what would divorce be like? If you have been a, a child within a divorce or if you have been a spouse that was divorced or divorced another, you know that it is a bloody mess. It's painful. God would bind these two things together and then they would be separated apart by a crowbar, perhaps. It would leave splinters. It can be done, but there won't be much left of the board's. And splintered boards is not what God has in mind for you this morning. He's not what, it's not what God has set before you this morning. Marriage is for life. And so if you're married this morning, or even if you're not, but if you are married, this passage is saying to you, stay married. You say, but this morning I was a part of a marriage before, and now I'm a part of another marriage. I've been remarried. What am I to do? You're to stay married. What are you to do furthermore? You're to die to self. You're to live to God. You're to serve God by serving your spouse all the days of your life. Why? Because marriage is for life. Marriage is for life. Before we move on, though, I've address the married folk in the room this morning. I want to address the, the singles, all the single ladies, all the single men, right? Regardless of age, if you're single this morning, I want you to notice something with me. Male or female. Check this out. Verse 8. Even if you're like 14, listen up. That's you, Eli. <laughs> this is what verse 8 says. This is Jesus. He says, And the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Notice it doesn't say, And two halves shall make a whole. That's not what it says. In the marriage covenant, God mysteriously, listen to this, he mysteriously takes two things and he makes them one thing. What he is not doing is taking two incomplete things, two halves and making one whole. Single single people, you need to catch this. If you don't catch anything else, catch this. In Christ, you are complete. You need nothing else. You have every spiritual blessing Already at your disposal. It's already been given and made available to you. You don't need a man to complete you. Most of them are boys anyway. You don't need that. Men, you don't need a wife by your side in order to be complete in Christ. You don't need that. That's, that's contrary to the Bible. It's contrary to the gospel. It's two individual, complete, beautiful things that bear the image of God that in, when God calls them into marriage... Two things become one thing. And that's mysterious and it's miraculous, but it is not necessary. Am I saying this morning that you shouldn't get married? Am I saying, hey, I would recommend that you not get married? Uh, Maybe a little bit of both. Marriage has been called the great crucible of sanctification. It's a beautiful thing, but it is an extremely painful thing. And all those who are married look to the person next to you that is not married and say amen. That was the best response I've ever got on a sermon. No, it's true. It's true. If you desire to be married, however, you desire, the Bible says, a good thing. And so search for it. Long for it. Pray for it. Search for it. But do not idolize it. Do not idolize it. Church, as you pray for each other, as you pray through our directory, pray for the marriages in our church, that God would strengthen them, that he would guard the eyes that he would guard the hearts and that our marriages and this church would really picture Christ's love for the church. Furthermore, pray for the young people, pray for the single people, pray for the old people that aren't married and ask God that he would glorify himself through their lives as well. And pray that they wouldn't make an idol from marriage. Jesus continues though, Verse nine, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So marriage is for life, but here marriage honors God. Marriage honors God. Here's here's why I mean by that. Uh, One pastor, he said it this way, divorce is the breaking of a seal which has been engraved by the hand of God. Divorce is the breaking of a seal which has been engraved by the hand of God. If you think about, that picture. It's a beautiful picture. I think it's helpful. It's a very poor comparison and yet it's helpful. This seal that God has placed on this thing, marriage, a union between a man and a woman, God says don't break it. If you break the seal of that, what are you doing? You're dishonoring God. But if you honor that seal, you honor God. And so we don't break the seal that God has placed. This bond that he has created between a man and a woman, we are not to destroy it not from the inside and surely not from without we recognize the seal of god on marriage and we honor him when we honor marriage so how are you to apply that single person when you keep yourself pure when you save yourself for marriage if you're to be married you honor god when you flee youthful lust, when you flee pornography, what are you doing in that moment? You are honoring God. And furthermore, married person, when when you remain pure, when you love your spouse, husbands as Christ loved the church, in that moment, in that action, you're honoring God. Why? Because you're not breaking that which he has put together and you're honoring that which he honors. At this point, The response of the Pharisees, it's equal in quantity as to their satisfaction. They're not satisfied. They have no satisfaction with Jesus' answer. He's not done what they've wanted him to do. And so they have no further questions. They move on. We can assume. But the disciples are still wondering. They're still wondering. Look at verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about the matter. I think that the disciples asked Jesus about this matter. I think it speaks to the complexity of this issue. You know, every single marriage is unique. In every single case, and every struggle, and every divorce, and every separation, they're all unique. And they all have their own set of factors and consequences and issues that are all tied up into one. And this, Mark uses the same verb here. The disciples test Jesus, they question Jesus, and so did the Pharisees. And yet I believe that the disciples are not trying to trip Jesus up. They're asking him, they're asking him the same questions. I think they're asking with a different motivation, but I think that speaks to the complexity here. They want to know, well, what about this situation? What about that situation? And Jesus really just takes the biggest one by the horns, and he answers that. Verse 11, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. By the way, this is for free. But the fact that Mark would include Jesus saying that, she, if, that, that a woman could divorce her husband as well in the case of adultery, or, or, or not, if, it's, if it's not in the case of adultery, then she's committed adultery, it actually speaks to the fact that, that uh, the word of God is not attempting to suppress women. Or to give some kind of a edge to men so that they can suppress women. That's not what's happening here. So that's an interesting fact. But maybe like maybe you're like the disciples this morning. You you come to the end of the sermon and you still have some questions. Okay. I recognize that, Pastor Josh, that I'm probably thinking too much about like what's legal and what's not legal. What's okay, what's permitted, what's not permitted. I recognize I'm probably doing that, and you're trying to like, lift my eyes so that I'll see what Jesus wants us to see, that marriage is beautiful, marriage is, is, is honoring to God, marriage is for a lifetime, but still yet we live in a fallen world, and I am a fallen person, and so I've got a few questions. Can you help us out? Maybe that's you this morning. There's so many circumstances that it would be impossible for me to answer each and every one of those And Jesus doesn't take the time to do that either. Again, he lifts their eyes and says, hey, this is wrong. Marriage is for life. Stay pure to one another. If you're struggling with this issue, maybe you want to help somebody or you're wrestling with it yourself. Maybe you're asking questions about your own past. Or maybe it's the present. Maybe you're in a marriage that you're struggling. Maybe you're in pain. Maybe you're. Maybe it's incredibly difficult for you, and you're saying, "Hey, I, I just I need to know what my options are. What am I to do? Where am I to go from here?" Well, I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter five. If you have your Bible, turn there. If you're just taking notes, you could write that down. 2 Corinthians chapter five. The Apostle Paul there. He he's speaking about struggles. He's speaking about physical struggles and spiritual struggles, and he's he makes this comment. And in, really in life, we all face that. We, we all face like a, this difficulty with what are we to do in this situation? What are we to do in that situation? And Paul says, hey, listen, in this life, we're going to have difficulties. We're going to have questions. And in the next, it's going to be all about pleasing God. He said, so here's what I want you to do. He says, in that life, for eternity... When we're with Christ, we're going to make it our aim to please him. And so he's kind of saying, hey, in this life, do the same thing. In this life, make it your aim to please God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body here on earth, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, listen to this. If you underline, you should underline this. Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. He goes on to say, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may, be, may be receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So whether we are at home here in, uh, there in heaven or away here on earth, are to make it our aim to please God. You say, Pastor Josh, I, I, I wasn't really prepared for this sermon this morning. I really wasn't prepared to hear about marriage and divorce, and I was kind of hoping to get some clarity. And maybe you are thinking, I, I still don't have any, and I need to know what am I, how am I to think about this, or how am I to proceed with that? Here is what I would encourage you to think. This is where you should start first and foremost. Our goal must be to honor God. Our goal and whatever we do should not be to please ourselves nor should it be to please the person across from us but it should be to please first and foremost god that's got to be our aim and so with questions related to marriage first ask is my ask this of your own heart is my aim to please god is my aim to please god Whether you're asking yourself, should I marry that boy? Should I marry that girl? First, ask your heart this. Is my aim to please God? Before you file for divorce, ask yourself this question. First, of your heart, is it your heart's aim to please God? Before you remarry, is it my aim to please God? And as you remain married through the crucible of sanctification, Ask yourself this, is it my aim to please God? Maybe you've lived your whole life up to now making your aim to please yourself and not to please God. If that's you, in any way, I beg you to repent, to turn from your selfish idolatry that plagues us all and receive forgiveness. Turn from that sin and make it your aim by the power of the word of God and the spirit of God to please God. Know this, that God is not the type of angry father that screams at wounded children for hurting themselves. No, that may be how we act. He is the type of father that disciplines those whom he loves, but he is more tenderly working to bind up to pick up the brokenhearted. And if you're hurting this morning because of a dysfunctional marriage, a, a nasty divorce or a miserable life that's centered on self even as a single, Jesus is extending his arms to you this morning and he's offering you forgiveness. He's offering grace. And the question I would ask you this morning is, will you receive healing? Will you receive grace? Yes, marriage is for life. But lest you desire to pick up stones or be crushed by the guilt of your past sin, know that grace is for eternity. This morning we remember and we celebrate the grace that was afforded to us by the blood of the Lamb. And we do so by coming to this table and by eating this bread and drinking this cup. When we take communion, we are physically taking into ourselves this symbol. And we're nourished by the truth that we're celebrating the broken body of our Savior. And so as you do, consider, remember what these substances, the bread and the juice, what they represent. And they're not symbols of some theoretical phenomenon. They're symbols of concrete, historical reality that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for you. The word of God says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Christians, as you come to the table this morning, when, when you take the bread, consider that. Meditate on that, that Christ's body was broken for you and that he paid the price for your sins. The bread is a symbol of him taking all the wrath that we deserve, all the punishment, all the guilt, sins against our spouse, of adultery, fornication, and all the above. He takes that on himself and he leaves nothing but affection, love, and grace for you, Christian. That's what the body represents. And in the same way, the word of God says that he took the cup after supper saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, this is the cup of the covenant. It symbolizes a relationship with God that can never be broken. And we drink the cup, we eat the bread and thereby we take the truth that we can never be separated from God and that he has bound us to himself in a way that will last through all of our conflicts, mistakes, failures, and even difficulties. Failed marriages, divorces, attempts to please ourselves, that his love overcomes all of that. His forgiveness covers that. But we also eat with a view toward the day when we will have the joy of seeing him face to face. And so as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we we now will walk by faith, not by sight. There's coming a day when we will come to the table and it won't be this little cup of juice and this little wafer, but we'll share a meal face to face with our Lord. One day we'll come to the table and we will eat with him. And so let's examine our hearts Let's consider the weight of what he has done for us and let's rejoice together as we take communion. If you have turned from your sins this morning and you placed your faith in Jesus, you've been baptized in the local local church and now you're faithfully committed via membership or or whatever's appropriate with your local congregation, we invite you to come to the table. If you've not been baptized this morning, if you're not a member of a like-minded church, I want to ask you this morning to to take those next steps. I want to invite you into that. Speak with myself, speak with Pastor Tim. We would, we'd love to, to walk you through the next steps. We'd love for, to help you fill out a Connect card. But I would ask you this morning to abstain from the table. It's not a denial. It's not saying we don't love you. It's not saying we don't want you here. And I recognize this is a tender thing, but it is a delay. It's saying let us walk with you. And it's an invitation to, to come in closer with God and closer with his church. And so come this morning, share a meal with the saints, and as you do, remember his sacrifice, celebrate his grace, and in hope, look for his return. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for the shed blood of the new covenant. We thank you for the body of Christ, which was shed for us. We come to this table in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice that first Good Friday, we ask that your blessings be upon these elements. We pray that you would meet your church here this morning and that we would meet one another. We pray that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.